0: contemporary issues relevant to Sir Robert's life and legacy with leading thinkers from around the world. Thank you for joining us today. Welcome and today we are speaking to Barry Jones who is a former Federal Member of Parliament, the Member for Lawler from 1977 to 1998. He was a Minister in the Hawke Government, Minister for Science and he was also National President of the ALP amongst many, many other things but because we're sitting here in the old quad today at Melbourne University, it's also worth noting Barry that you we're a student here and studied arts and law and of course in a visiting professorial position to this day at Melbourne University. It's yep. wonderful to have you on the afternoon light podcast, talking to us here at the Robert Menzies Institute. And it's it's lovely to have you in person. You're only my second podcast guest in person, given well, the the year we've had. <laughs> And one of the reasons why uh, I was really keen to get you on the Afternoon Light podcast, Barry, was because you were a friend of Bob Menzies.
1: Well, friend is probably too strong a word, <laughs> but let's say we had, a, we had a strong acquaintance and he was always very kind to me and if I he was easy to get to if I wanted something, if I wanted some information. Uh, he was very, very accessible and it was partly, I think, through... Dame Patty, who was a fan of mine, partly because of pick a box And I knew that, uh, which is well before your time. Yes. T- t-
0: tell, tell me and our listeners what Pick-A-Box is.
1: pick a box was a television quiz. Oh. And I was the sort of star of it and yes. certainly the longest running performer yeah. Yeah. between 1960 and 1968. Not all the time, but I was actually on 208 times in that oh eight-year period. But Dame Patty was a great pal, of, uh, a fan of mine. And I noticed if, if ever I came across Sir Robert, I mean, as a political junkie, I'd turn up to Liberal Party meetings that Menzies was speaking, because yeah. it was always wonderful to hear. And uh, if he ever saw me, you know, he'd always give me a kind of a grave... <laughs> salute to indicate, the and,
0: and were you a member of the Labour Party at that time? Were oh yes, attorney- I joined the
1: Labour Party in nineteen fifty.
0: Nineteen fifty,
1: because that was a period in the, you know, this was immediately after the defeat of the uh, Chifley government in nineteen forty nine, and uh, Chifley had, I think, in that post-war period, Chifley had an extraordinary uh, gift for grasping with a a lot of very important international issues. And then, in a way, when Sir Robert Menzies came in, he didn't exactly promise to make things relaxed and comfortable, but in a a way, it was a kind of reaction against the period of austerity that um, uh, Chifley had been uh, committed to. Yes. And uh, Chifley had... There was a kind of an austerity in Chifley's approach to things, and there were a couple of issues that he really got completely wrong. I think Chifley was completely wrong on the bank nationalisation thing. Mm, Well, and
0: and of course came undone with that issue. Came undone with that issue, and in the end,
1: it didn't matter. I mean, if you had a reserve bank with certain powers and so on that could intervene, then... Who it was who then owned... What was then the Bank of New South Wales or the National Bank or the ESNA Bank didn't matter. Mm. The important thing was, you know, how did you control the the flow of currency? How did you control interest rate? That was more important, and he missed that. But Mm. in other issues, particularly in international issues, I think he was really very good. He, even more, I think, than ever in some ways recognized that uh, Indonesia was uh, going to be a significant power and, and that Australia had to commit itself to recognizing and supporting the forces of uh, campaign for independence the idea that you could keep the dutch in control was simply absurd mm. and uh, he was a uh, chief was a very very remarkable man very much admired by the way by by Menzies. Menzies right. had, had a lot of respect for him.
0: Well Menzies had a had a reputation for having friendships across the aisle. He was not not one to to eschew a relationship just because of someone's partisan tendencies or affiliations. I mean, he's obviously famously and had the strong friendship with Curtin and, and chiefly, I think he was a pallbearer at both their funerals, wasn't yes, he? So that's if, true. Can that's you true. imagine that in a contemporary no setting? Absolutely you can't, not. can no. you? No, it's it's the partisanship is is much sharper now, isn't it? Can, oh, it's
1: awful. it's yeah. just
0: awful. Can we start though, though, Barry, just by um. You're telling me a bit about how you came to know Menzies. I mean, you obviously knew Menzies knew of Menzies as a you know you're a mm. political junkie. You're joining the Labor Party mm. in the in 1950, which I think makes you 18. So you yeah, you well, join yeah. pretty pretty much as soon as you could.
1: No, I, I it's actually 17. Seventeen. I joined right. in um, it January 1950. I did I did two things. I joined the I joined the Labor Party and I read the whole of Ulysses by. By James Joyce.
0: It's a busy month.
1: <laughs> no, no,
0: I read it in a single day. Amazing. So two big events in January 1950, and uh, but but then over the years you came you came to know Menzies maybe not as a as a friend but at least he became a well, figure I'm in your life. you your <laughs> trying
1: to redefine it a bit. Yes. I mean, I I did have a good relationship with. I I doubt if if there'd been. I mean, friendship's got to be reciprocal. Yes. If we had. If, we, if he wrote out a list of his hundred friends, I doubt if I'd be on it. But uh, as I say, Dame Patty was keen. And then later on, I mean, there was a long period when, you know, for example, I, I did the first, God help me, I did the first radio talkback program in Melbourne. Yes. And um, would talk back with Barry Jones on a radio station that doesn't exist anymore, 3DB, which was owned by the Herald Sun and uh, i did a long interview with sir robert but then later on he moved to um malvern haverbeck avenue malvern which was was fairly close to where we lived right and, uh, and i this would was run in, into his dame... retirement
0: of course oh yes, yes. oh no yeah. it, after he yeah, left the lodge absolutely. Yeah. yeah
1: but i'd run into dame patty at the supermarket <laughs> and she'd say look why don't you go and talk to him, he's very depressed oh. and why don't you go around and talk to him and cheer him up and so I would go around, I don't want to exaggerate, well I suppose I do want to exaggerate but Be I suppose I must, have, I must have gone, <laughs> I don't know, seven or eight times to, simply to talk to him and get him to reminisce and you know sometimes he'd sign copies of his book, f- books for me and so on so we, you know we had an amiable, let's just say an amiable relationship
0: You gave him a book, which is actually in the Baylew Library in the Menzies collection, so he he kept that book and it was part of his bequest to Melbourne University. It was uh, Decades of Decision, 1860, a compendium of modern history and I don't know if you remember that you inscribed in its front cover to Sir Robert Menzies, Prime Minister for more than half the lifetime of the author, Barry Jones, July 1965. So actually you gave it to him the, bo- the year before he retired. Yeah. And that's, that's lovely that um, he kept it. Oh, yes. Well. Uh, so, you know, maybe you were in that top 100. Yeah, well, <laughs> well,
1: well by yeah. the time he retired, there weren't too many in the Liberal Party that he liked. No, Let me so tell, tell you that.
0: So tell me about these these occasions you um, you caught up with with Bob at Haverbrack Avenue, which unfortunately this year was demolished which was well, very and, sad. And,
1: uh, and, and, and the Whitlam birthplace, which was another sacred site, that was demolished the year before. Yes, Australians
0: uh, have a terrible irreverence when it comes to uh, to our to our past leaders. And well, anyway,
1: well, we're doing well, something about it. Where real estate it. development's concerned, yeah. absolutely. Yeah.
0: <laughs> where there's a dollar to be made. Yep. <laughs> Let it be made.
1: <laughs> well, he was... Look, the thing... First of all, I think he was very ungenerous to... To Holt, that uh, it occurred to me while he used to talk about Holt that, in a way, when Menzies was leading the Liberal Party, the Liberal Party was like an overcoat, <laughs> and when he stepped out of the overcoat, the overcoat's changed, <laughs> changed shape. Yeah, it was completely different. So the result is that when Holt became leader, Holt had particular concerns about having stronger relationship with Asia, for example. He's much more oriented towards Asia, less oriented towards the British connection. Yes. And also he was much more liberal on issues like race, like, you know, he was uh, against the white Australia policy, but, you know, began to move with when Hubert Opperman was the Minister for Immigration, and Opperman deserves some credit for that, but they started to liberalise things. Menzies was outraged, too, by – I don't know quite how to say this – Holt's different sense of the dignity of the office. Menzies was very conscious about the dignity of the office. Mm. And um, I don't have to shock you unduly, but I remember he he said that he was very, very distressed by a very familiar photograph of um, Holt photographed in a wetsuit. Surrounded by two dark daughters-in-law who arguably had breasts,
0: right? right. And um, so, not not unusual for daughters-in-law. So I'm, I'm told. So
1: I'm told. But Menzies was really outraged by that. Oh, okay. he th- "How could a prime minister possibly allow himself to be?" Associated?
0: So you think he, you think Menzies, had he been alive, wouldn't have liked Tony Abbott in his budgie smugglers?
1: <laughs> well, I think that's true. I think that's absolute. He had a very real sense of the dignity yes, of it, yeah. and that's what you know. One of the reasons he loved the royal family. I mean, maybe not Prince Andrew, but he, you know, the sense that they represent dignity and a certain style. And then you see, he thought he thought Gordon was shambolic, and there were certainly shambolic elements. And then he loathed McMahon, mm. who he thought was a you know. A, treacherous and, uh, uh, you know, completely untrustworthy and so on. So I I had to hold back an impulse to say, it's your party, it's the (laughs) party you created. How come you feel so badly about uh, the people succeeding? Uh, He saw Snedden as a lightweight. Well, that was right on the money there. He did have some respect for Fraser, which then raised the question, If he had some respect for Fraser, thought he was the hope of the site, why didn't he put him in his cabinet? And that's a mystery. I I don't know the answer. Did
0: you ever ask him?
1: I didn't put it in quite those terms. Mm. But later on, of course, you you may not be aware, but Fraser and I developed a very close relationship, uh, partly because he put me on the board of Care Australia when he was there. And, in fact, I continued on the board of Care Australia after Malcolm left and uh, I stayed there under Bill Dean who succeeded him as the as the chair and then later on we we developed this relationship in which we we came to the conclusion that there were about 35 policy issues in which both the major parties were deficient Mm. and I I still think that's I still think that's the case. Mm. I think I think the Liberal Party is policies are pretty dreadful and and the labor policies are arguably well let's just say deeply disappointing
0: so when you were meeting Bob Menzies in the in the seventies really when he was yeah. at Haverbrack and he's he's expressing disappointment with Liberal leaders as yeah. they as they yeah. they sort of rotated through yeah. at, at that stage obviously quite different from his his time in office when it was a period of of extraordinary unprecedented stability. You, you have said in, in other interviews and um, and writings that, that Menzies admitted to not even voting Liberal at the time, to voting for the, I think it was the DLP. The DLP. That's right. He, well, he was very close the... with BA Santa Maria, wasn't he?
1: Yes and no. He respected Santa Maria, and I think in that interview that I did with John Howard um, back in uh, 2015, I, I talked about that relationship. And, of course... He had very good reason to be deeply grateful Mm. for what had happened because the consequences of the Labor Party split had been that um, uh, you had the, the tremendous number of votes that came from, in a sense, the old traditional conservative Irish Catholic right who'd been perhaps Labor supporters all their lives and then suddenly after the split... On the issue of communism, they changed direction and th- those preferences went very tightly uh, towards the Liberals. And that certainly uh, assisted him in, in being uh, re-elected, particularly, of course, in that strange year of 1961 when Arthur Corwell, who'd been a, a real victim of the split mm. and who was a practicing Catholic, he almost, almost took a, you know, won the prize, mm. which was extraordinary. Yes, I mean, it was a I very close-run thing. Yeah. Well, what it indicated is that, as I said to, uh, to uh, Howard, the thing about it was Queensland again. Yes. You had extraordinary swings in Queensland, and that's been part of the history of Queensland, that when the swings come, they tend to be quite dramatic. Mm. Mm. And so uh, uh, it was ironic to think that Jim Killen, for example, was re-elected on Communist Party preferences because some of the Communist Party votes leaked right, to us. Right, right. Yeah. got, if, if he hadn't got any... The other thing I must say, uh, you, you might be amused by this, back in 1943, that's the year when you've had the greatest number of people who were unhappy with the major parties...
0: Really? In, oh, 19, in Australian yeah. political history?
1: Yep. Yeah. Even in, in recent years. And well, and the extraordinary thing was, you'll find this hard to believe, but I checked it out. Um, in 1943, in Kuyong, mm-hmm. the Communist Party candidate got 8.2% of the vote.
0: Oh, wow. That is extraordinary.
1: Of which 10% of his preferences <laughs> went to Menzies. <laughs>
0: Menzies actually banned the Communist Party when he was Prime Minister the first time, didn't he? Or no, maybe when he was Attorney-General, I think. No, General it wasn't, Att-
1: no, it wasn't quite that. Um, I think when he was Attorney-General earlier on, he... Um, I mean, I, I think in that period before he became Prime Minister, he was uh, deeply concerned about the Communist Party and there was a, a, a celebrated incident the case of Egon Kish. Yes. And the Egon Kish case was, uh, of course, went up to the High Court where, where Everett, who later on, of course, was to be the unsuccessful leader of the opposition when Menzies was Prime Minister. But um, the Egon Kish case is a very, very interesting one, in which you, you, the, the Lyons government was so petrified of the idea of being involved in a war That they were prepared to make any kind of concession to uh, that they make any kind of concession to history, to to Hitler, because what they felt was that, well, maybe it didn't really matter what happened in Eastern or even Central Europe, providing that Western Europe was not touched by Hitler. Well, we could accommodate that, and uh, one of the things that's one of the oddest elements, I'd say, of the Menzies mythology has been to say that Menzies was very, very close to Churchill. Mm. Well, that's a very dubious proposition. In fact, you see, if you find in the 1930s you had a deep division within the government. You had four ministers. Mm. We had three ministers and one high commissioner, Stanley Stanley Bruce, Bruce. but you had three ministers, Lyons, Menzies and Casey, who were very strong appeasers,
0: mm,
1: mm. very strong appeasers. That
0: was bipartisan, though. That, that well, view
1: yes and no. C- but cur- you see, Curson. within the within the UAP at that stage, not to be confused with Clive Palmer's UAP, but yes. the UAP at that <laughs> stage also had had three ministers: Billy Hughes, Henry Gullet, mm. and um, and T.W. White, Tom White, who recognised that Hitler represented an existential threat. And for some reason, Menzies allowed himself to be sucked into this delusion uh, which was peddled by Bruce. Where Bruce got it from, I have no idea, but it was ridiculous. Their argument was that um, uh, that the the Nazi regime in Germany consisted of two factions, a war faction and a peace faction. And Hitler was a kind of Nominal figure at the top, and a bit of a dreamer. Not mm. really, not a great administrator like Mussolini. <laughs> uh, and uh, uh, that he, in a way, you know, he was a philosophical dreamer. God. And but you could get to him, and you know, he could just say, "Look, this isn't reasonable. Let's mm. let's fix this up." And Billy Hughes, who in many ways was a dreadful piece of work. There's no doubt about that, but. But Hughes was right on the money. Right. It was Hughes right from the start, and he got ticked off by uh, he got ticked off by uh, by Lyons uh, because he kept saying Hitler doesn't act according to the rules. Don't assume to say, "Oh, look, he's reasonable. If He sit down and mm. you know have a bit of negotiating. It'll all be fine." He's not like that. He's going to wreck the whole show. Um, so you had a, I, no, the Labour Party is not is 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 uh, uh, not guiltless in that in that area. They because again, so many young people had died in the First World War. That's right.
0: That context must oh, have yes, been were, were weighed, weighed heavily on all politicians of of whatever colour uh, on their shoulders that in any decision to to go to war, which you know really was a decision taken by Britain mm. anyway. Um, we, was was recommitting Australia to an Australian young men to uh, to certain death, and I of mean, course Bruce I
1: mean. and uh, Casey had both been in the war mm. and they'd seen dreadful things, and you could understand why they of why course. they felt so strongly about yes. it. But uh, you could see that um, it's very interesting, and if you haven't seen it, it's a very very important book, Australia and Appeasement, by Christopher Waters. Very interesting book, which you should have in your collection, because he's worked entirely on the archives. Right. And with the archival stuff, you find Menzies very, very critical of, of Churchill. So, oh, yes. the problem with Churchill, you know, he's really living in the past. He doesn't understand some new situation. He really ought to get to understand what Hitler's doing and, you know, really there's a lot to be said for... I mean, Menzies was certainly not a fascist or anything like that. He was in sense... A nineteenth-century liberal, a nineteenth-century. Mm. St- st- it's interesting that his reading, you see, Thackeray, for example, to him yes. was probably the most contemporary novelist uh, <laughs> that he read, and he was th- that. And I, something that struck me as I was thinking about, you know, preparing for today. I grew up in a family, and there must have been many like mine who. Unlike yours, who had authentic international experience or, or experience of Britain, um, in my family, they used to, you had a generation who used to talk about home.
0: Yes. About yeah.
1: home. Yeah. They'd never been. Home.
0: No, well, Menzies didn't even go to to Britain until the 30s, did oh, he? Oh, that's right. I mean, it's amazing. Yep, so he was right. born in 1894. I think his first visit was yep. thir- 1936 or something.
1: 35 or 36. Yeah, yep. yeah. Extraordinary. Yeah. That's right. Extraordinary. That, that yes. my, it was extraordinary that, that I, other than an aunt of mine who'd lived in England briefly, mm-hmm. um, there was no one in my family who'd been home. home. Yeah. And yet they. they in a sense, they always saw the sense of Australia as simply being an extension yeah. of home yeah. and that the British institutions were always the best and, and so on. And that meant that time really caught up with, with Bob Menzies. That the, you see, he uh, uh, when you look at his uh, concerns, for example, about, uh, uh, for example, independence for India, he was very uneasy, very unhappy mm. Mm. about India becoming independent. He, he, he really, and in the case, you know, of Vietnam, you know, he took so readily this uh, view of, um, uh, you know, the Eisenhower view about the falling domino effect.
0: Yes, that's you right. You know, to
1: say, oh, look, if it, if if Vietnam falls, oh, and, and that sense that they had and there must have been somebody in foreign affairs who took a different point of view. You know, that sense to say, "Oh, uh, what's happening in Vietnam is driven by China. Mm. And they didn't, he didn't understand the history of it all, that Vietnam was very wary about being seen as being pushed by China, mm. being absorbed by China. And it's so odd, when you reflect, uh, back in 1945 when Ho Chi Minh, uh, declared independence. What did he? What did he quote as his inspiration? The U.S. Declaration of Independence. Ah, That's what.
0: Interesting. Yeah. That's
1: what. Yeah. Written. Yeah. Written by Thomas Jefferson, who Menzies later on claimed as a hero. Mm. I mean, it's so ridiculous. Yeah.
0: yeah. Well, it, with the benefit of hindsight, we can all be found to be a little bit hypocritical and inconsistent. It's uh, you know the context of the times, I guess. And, well, I'm not sure. Yeah.
1: It's that. I'm not so much concerned with hindsight, I'm concerned with now sight. <laughs> you know, yeah. there was plenty yeah. of evidence around to suggest that Hitler if anyone had read his book, you would have thought he is not an ordinary politician.
0: No, no, yeah. Well the um i mean it was quite clear that when Menzies was prime minister, and in September 1939 declared yep. his melancholy duty that Australia was now at war. Britain had declared war on Germany, and Australia was now at war. He, um, you know, he did that with a with a sense of you know he was he was melancholy. He wasn't cheerful about it. He wasn't gung ho about it. But it oh, was well, it was a fait accompli. But-, um, but you know there was a there was a strong commitment to defeat Hitler. Uh, a recognition. By then, that Hitler had terrible intentions. And of course, the next two years were was spent, was spent ensuring that Australia was committed to to the war and, and, and able to, to, to defend itself. And that was, of course, a, another point where Menzies really, really found his relationship with Churchill challenging because he was concerned that Churchill did not take the threat to Australia oh, and yeah. Singapore oh, no. well, seriously. I agree with that. Yes.
1: I agree with that. But look, I'd change. The adjective you use, I wouldn't say strong commitment. I'd say reluctant commitment, mm. because even in August, they were still saying to uh, their rep- to uh, Bruce to say, put pressure on the English on the British government mm. to ensure that the polls make more concessions. Right. Because their argument was, if they made more concessions, maybe, maybe. If the Poles gave up dancing, if they gave up their port,
0: mm. uh,
1: well, you know everything would be all right. And so it was the pressure was to, on Poland to say, "Oh, be reasonable, you know, mm. be reasonable, don't, mm. don't, don't hang us out to dry." It's,
0: it's interesting, Barry, talking about. That period, you know, the 38, 39 that lead up to World War Two, and, and then obviously reflecting on the... You can't even calculate the number of tragedies that happened during World War Two. Yeah. Of course, the most terrible to the Jewish people across Europe. Um, in a contemporary context, we hear the sort of drumbeats of war over Taiwan, you know, US, China, and where does Australia come, come in if, if there's a confrontation hmm. over Taiwan? Is Australia... In, in the fight against china these are i mean again we are faced with a frightening escalation of tensions people rightly wanting to avoid a confrontation a military confrontation we Not you know, look, well indeed there's there's a diversity of views but i think the prevailing view is you don't want a military confrontation you want these issues to be settled peace peacefully and countries across our region to be focused on on prosperity for for everyone and peace for everyone, but you know there is how do you deal with that escalation of tensions and. Um, Assertions of aggression in contested waters, contested territory. This is, this, there's got to be lessons to be learned from the World War II experience for us to take into, into what we're dealing with now with a rising China and you know, challenge to US preeminence and, of course, the contested territory of Taiwan.
1: I think there actually are some dangers in saying let's look back and see the previous experience as being the model we should follow.
0: Well, maybe not the model, but, but what, how do we learn from it? Do we, how do we make sure we, we don't make mistakes again or, or, how do, or that we can do things no, the rec- right way re- based on, on previous experience?
1: I recognise the, the terrible dilemma about, about time one, and I'm very sensitive about that. And it's really a matter of, of again, trying to find out, you know, really ex- essentially what the issues are to what extent they are you know, where the Chinese government is proclaiming something and indicating it—it's got what got to be taken seriously, or whether they're really prepared to go into a into a shooting war. I mean, I think some of the things that um, our defence minister has said have been rather rather foolish. I think you see this. There's, there's a and there's a division, of course, within the Labour Party on the issue. There's something to be said, of course, for. Keating's view that, in a way, you could see that China has always been essentially a continental a continental power mm. and you see part of our difficulty is that there's water between the mainland between the mainland and uh, Taiwan. but you see, if you think of where China has been at its most aggressive, take uh, Xinjiang, for yes. example yeah. you know. Do you really see that as being an Australian priority? Do you think we'd be committing forces to fighting in Xinjiang? I doubt it. Would we be fighting in, in Tibet? I doubt it. And yet, you, in terms of of you know, cruelties, barbarities, killings, and so on, you know, what's going on? What has gone on in Tibet over a long period is very mm. serious. But mm. would, and enjoyed, would, we have, yeah. would we have made an, a, a priority? I don't think we would. And uh, you could see that, it, given the history of it all, you can see that um, obviously uh, President Xi is uh, is determined to indicate that you know he's the greatest leader since Mao, or maybe even a greater leader than Mao, mm. and that he's completing the whole business of Chinese. Uh, so, so that we've got to understand the culture involved, yes, and we've got to be much a bit more sensitive. We have, I think, a number of our contributions have been either weak or dumb.
0: Well, I, I think it's clear that um, Chinese leadership plays a very long game. I mean, a, you know, a generational, centuries. Absolutely worldview there um, and a reclamation of what they see as their rightful place in the sort of, you know, group of great power, great countries, great, great, great empires, and they see Taiwan as their rightful territory, but they also see parts of Japan as their rightful territory, parts of, you know, contested contested waters in the East China Sea, and, uh, you know, this you give an inch, they certainly look like they could take a mile, and this is where I think. I mean, it's a wicked choice, isn't it? It's a wicked choice. It's not an easy decision to go into to, to defend pl- Taiwan, nor nor to then defend the Senkaku Islands, Okinawa, in in Japan. All of these waters, and of course, there's um, there's territory of of other Southeast Asian nations that are claimed by China. They basically claim the whole of the South China Sea. And you know, where do you where where do you seed, and where do you where do you defend?
1: Well, I understand that, but I also my other concern, my other anxiety, is whether every issue in foreign policy is seen in a political context. Mm. Does it help us to win the next time round? Mm. And one of the worst things I think about the the current government um, is its obsessive preoccupation with the very short term.
0: Well, it it it's in. I mean, just Australian and and U.S. Uh, you know, Western political contexts are much more short-term than, say, our, our putative opponents um, in in North Asia, because no, the nature no, of the, our political system... But it's really so
1: it's, a matter of saying, will it help us win the next election? Yeah, yeah.
0: Well, it's the nature of democracy in our in country. It is not country. the nature
1: of democracy. The point about democracy is that you, you, you've you got to be prepared to lead. Mm. And, you, and one of the best things a politician can do is to tell people to say, you won't like what I'm going to tell you, mm. I mean, think for a moment of uh, Edmund Burke's famous dress uh, to the electors of, of Bristol, that in other words, it's not a matter of being re-elected, it's because you think it's the right thing to do. Yeah. And, yeah. and, it's, and because it has long-term consequences.
0: Well, I think we'd all like our politicians to, to do just that. And uh, and I know Menzies felt that that was his duty as a leader to, to persuade and lead not just to look mm. at polls and think about the next the next poll he was facing. No, uh, oh, and no I uh, think
1: he did take the long... He yeah. was, I mean, he was wrong on a whole number of issues, but I think he used the parliament. Mm. Mm. And the present mob don't use the parliament. Mm. They see the parliament essentially as an electoral college. It'll, it elects the executive and then after that, no more. Mm. And uh, I think that's terrible.
0: I wanted to ask you about... The split um, in the Labor hmm. Party, um, over, over communism. Hmm. Which you, you lived and breathed as a, a, well, at least a member of the Labor Party yeah. in the 1950s. Um, you first ran, didn't you, in 1955, uh, unsuccessfully. Weren't yeah. elected, of course, until the 70s. But, um, but you're obviously engaged in the Labor Party yeah. and then the Labor Party split was sort of happening over a number of years in, 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 you know more so in different states and there was obviously the queensland split too. but but it must have been extraordinary menzies as you said before clearly benefited oh, from yeah. from the split yep. and there are elections where he's elected on dlp preferences and yep. you know but for the labor split we wouldn't have had yep. our longest serving prime minister yep. in rg menzies so tell me what was it like and uh and and you know where where did you fall and i've pretty sure I know where you fell, but just can you give me a sense of that of that time and, and the, the difficulties within the Labor Party in the 50s?
1: Well, one of the, I mean, one of the, when I was first in the Labor Party, it was still run to a large extent by the what we'd think of as being the traditional conservative Catholic right. Yes. And in fact, you might argue that Santa Maria and her supporters might have had greater influence in the long term within the party, you know, if they stayed within the party rather than Mm. breaking away. Mm. What happened was that with the defection of that uh, traditional, we'll say traditional Irish Catholic vote, but conservative too, it meant that the centre of gravity of the party inevitably moved left.
0: Yes, of course.
1: So I found myself unhappy with the previous regime and unhappy... With the subsequent regime, because one was far too far to the right, and the other was, I think, thought too far to the left, and ultimately, you should be aware of this, but it's, uh, perhaps you're not. There's quite an interesting group uh, of us that were known as the participants.
0: All right.
1: The participants, and we were a kind of anti-faction, a faction that wasn't a faction. Yeah. But and we, when I look back, did, I did, can see it, did the
0: participants have a link to a particular union? Or no, 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 no. no, you no were that's just,
1: the point. Yeah. they were almost all professionals. Mm-hmm. A disproportionate number of them were lawyers, right? And mm-hmm. you see, they included John Cain Junior. That is John Cain, John Button, Michael Duffy, me, Dick McGarvey, who was later the governor of Victoria. Xavier Connor, who was a judge of the federal court, Alastair Nicholson, who was Chief Justice of the Family Court, Jim Kennan, who was a QC and who later for a while was the Labour Party leader, John Thwaites, who was the Deputy Premier under Brax, uh, Steve Brax himself was part. So that we, we were a group of, of idealistic people, if you like. Right. And we campaigned, we, and, but we were Whitlamites. I mean, we had some reservation or. Others had reservations about, about Gough in some ways. But essentially, we supported the Whitlam position, which was of opening up the party. And the participants played a, a really quite significant role in getting the federal intervention. Mm. And essentially, there's no doubt about South Australia, essentially the critical factor in getting that federal intervention was Clyde Cameron.
0: Oh, yes, very good friend of my grandfather's.
1: In, yeah. in, exactly, because he'd been sort of, he'd been supporting the left, but he came to see that the left in Victoria was so unattractive. That and
0: you, you, by unattractive you mean electorally?
1: Electorally, yes. But not, but not only that, but also they, they were authoritarian yeah. in nature. Mm. They hated dissent. I mean, I can think of other parties where they're not keen on dissent who get taken away for counselling. and um,
0: you are fr- But in the Liberal Party, you are free to, free to vote oh, of against course, your party. Of course, of I of think course, in the Labor exactly. Party, you're out of caucus keep, if you do.
1: I, I, keep, I keep forgetting,
0: of course, <laughs> yes.
1: Splendid. Uh, anyway, um, um, it, was, but it was ultimately we or they, the, the participants really persuaded Clyde Cameron to change direction, it was Cameron's intervention, mm. or rather, changing position, that meant that the news, that the Victorian executive, the then hard left executive, were dismissed from office, yes. and you had the introduction of proportional representation, and you had a broader a broader representation of people running the thing. And mm. it was that, and that alone, that uh, enabled me to win pre-selection for the state seat of Melbourne. And then for the federal seat of law, I'd never been able to win a pre-selection under the present circumstances.
0: Is that right? Oh, absolutely.
1: Okay. Well, first of all, they don't, they don't put people in their 90th year. On, no. But, um, but It's a bit unfair, a the bit ageist of them. But, they, but no, the situation now is that, that seats are simply carved up. They say, yes. that's for the left, that's for the right. Anyone in the middle? Oh no! Oh, no. Mm-hmm. We wouldn't want that. So they make animal noises.
0: Well, it's uh, it, it it's certainly one way of selecting candidates. It's probably not a way that the um, the public would prefer it. But no. but anyway, that's well, the, the public the, don't know
1: anything about it.
0: political how political parties operate. Um, I wanted to get back to the to the Menzies era and just ask you a bit about what what it was like living in the Menzies era. I've seen your interview with, you did with John Howard and you, you spoke about a lot of people leaving Australia because they, they were unhappy. So, you know, the famous ones, of course, are Clive James, Barry, you know, Barry Humphreys, Jermaine uh, Greer. The sixties were, were a time when a lot of intellectual, Australian intellectuals were, were going to, to, to home, to the mother country, yeah. to live a, live in a different kind of intellectual environment. Um, but what was your experience? In the '60s you were obviously in talkback radio in the '60s yeah. at that stage. so:
1: well I mean the, the thing that's really very odd uh, that you, um, you you should mention uh, Clive James and Barry Humphreys because they did take off, but they are also they uh, oriented towards the right yeah very much and and I remember Clive James who's normally an exemplary essayist, but he wrote a, um, he wrote an essay on uh, Menzies in the Times Literary Supplement, which I thought was absolute rubbish. Oh. I mean, it was absolute rubbish. I mean, and it could only have been written by somebody who wasn't here.
0: Right, yes, yeah, I see. It was only, it had
1: nothing about it. And, and
0: of course, at that time too, you know, pre-internet age... So you're not you know, necessarily reading all the Australian media, and, and I think you know not being in a place you can't really feel exactly. the zeitgeist exactly. can you exactly, no. yeah.
1: but look, there was a sense that, for example, um, uh, you could see that things like protection to Menzies meant that sense of Australia as being a bounded unit mm. And that there were contagions in the other in the outside world
0: mm. we 're familiar with them it, these days Barry
1: and it, yeah well <laughs> exactly but if you if you were to protect australia you, you you had to keep out you had to keep out goods you see he'd received support from some labor people for his attitude on tariff protection mm. you know because it'd say, oh well, it could mean that you know Furniture manufacturers and so on could be earning it. Well,
0: and especially here in Victoria, Australia's sort of traditional manufacturing base, there was a much stronger protectionist sentiment, wasn't there, in Victoria than in New in South New Wales? South- well, oh, no, yeah. that's,
1: abs- that's yeah. absolutely right. But one of the things that made Hawke, I think, exceptional, and I, I didn't have an easy relationship with Hawke, but so I can speak in a kind of very objective way. The thing about Hawke had an extraordinary capacity to get an issue and explain it in a way, w- even though people thought it was against their interest. Mm. Uh, and, um, you know, if you think back, you think which electorate in Australia had the largest number of clothing and textile factories? And the answer is his own electorate.
0: Uh, interesting.
1: His own electorate, you yes. see. And he, but what he said to his electorate was, look, you're not going to be happy with what I'm telling you, but your children and your grandchildren will be living in it and they won't be working in sweatshops. You know, so that it was a matter of really taking it on and persuading people.
0: Which, of course, is, is, as you were saying before, a character of of true political leadership to identify an issue and it's not necessarily a prevailing view. Yeah but to see beyond your immediate electoral disadvantage right. from advocating that issue and, and prosecute it and, and persuade.
1: And the other issue, of course, with, with Hawke, I'd have to say, was that, um, uh, you know, the, the famous Tasmanian dams case oh, yes, 1983. Yes, I remember see,
0: studying it in constitutional law here in this building. We,
1: but we, but we, lost, we lost every seat in Tasmania, mm. but he was able to say, but it's the right thing to do. Mm. it's the right thing to do. And in the end, the votes came back in Tasmania.
0: Another, like Queensland, volatile, electorally volatile state. Somewhat, yes. somewhat.
1: But, but Hawke Hawk had that great, extraordinary gift, I think, for, for persuasion. His greatest achievement in some ways, of course, was the... Uh, Antarctic Treaty, having the 50-year moratorium on mm. exploration, mm. because everyone, including Gareth Evans, said, don't waste political capital on it. You you won't succeed. And he said, yes, I will. And he was determined. And the result was that he, uh, with the support of Jacques Cousteau oh, yes. and Michel Rocard, who yeah. was then the, the French president, they persuaded Margaret Thatcher. Mm. They persuaded um, uh, George H.W. Bush. Yeah. And it went through, and they but the, got it the, the across conventional the wisdom is to say there's nothing in it. You won't succeed
0: Yeah.
1: and you'll lose a bit of political capital. We well, didn't gain particularly
0: mm-hmm. from
1: it in terms of political capital, but the point was it was a major thing to do and it was, it was imaginative and constructive and creative and taking the very long term.
0: Yeah. And back to Menzies, Barry, Um, and I I actually, I wanted to mention this at the beginning, but I forgot. Um, Did you know today, and we're recording this on the 2nd of December, 2021, is the 49th anniversary of? Uh,
1: The election of the Menzies. Oh, Oh, no. Whitlam.
0: Whitlam. I with the ninth Whit- anniversary of, of the election of the Whitlam government yeah. so it it's a i mean particularly for for, for yes, the labor course, tribe of course, of course. Um, it's a particularly special day but it's you know in Australian political history these are things we should look back and remember and reflect on
1: the thing that I find so dismaying about the two major parties is their lack of ambition mm. there's no ambition at all mm. other than winning the next election and it's hard to see any... Do you think that's
0: changed, Barry? Do you, I mean, you, we've talked about Hawke, and I wanted to talk about Menzies, um, what you think are his, his most significant achievements and enduring legacies, and we've, we've had a conversation about this before, well, I th- and I know you've got some views, but do I, you think I, contemporary political leaders are any different from their forebears?
1: Well, I think, first of all, I think Menzies was quite right in saying that expansion of universities was very important, And not necessarily too many votes in it, but it was very important.
0: Well, especially especially at a time when barely anyone went to university and the people who did were basically the children of wealthy people. So if you were thinking in terms of – and I mean, Menzies definitely eschewed class warfare, but if you were thinking in terms of class warfare, he certainly wasn't necessarily putting – Commonwealth money into things that were going to win votes, although he could prosecute it in terms of aspiration, look, you can now get your kids into university, I'm going to double the number of university, increase all these places for scholarship kids.
1: But you see, I think he had that sense of of what Jefferson was on about, to say that the whole question of democracy, if democracy was to succeed, and he was certainly a Democrat, If democracy is going to succeed, it had to be on the basis of enlightened values. Yes. And that's why he was quite keen on supporting the humanities. It wasn't just a matter of, um, you know, a narrow professionalism. It was much broader than that. The thing that also is important about Menzies was he was not corrupt. Mm. He was not corrupt. He was very clean. And actually, I've been thinking about this a bit. Um... He was not in thrall to big business. No, not at all. No, and and
0: well, in fact, in the uh, when in the sort of dying days of the the UAP, I think it mm. was. I mean, he's you know thinking about the creation of a new mm. political party. He he said that he did, did not want a party, particularly did not want a party of vested interests.
1: Yep. Exactly. wanted a party
0: of the mu- middle class, the forgotten oh, yeah. people. Oh no, yes. that's
1: right. Yeah. I was going to say, I think it's interested me a lot, is the way in which. Um, Menzies was very clever in some ways in his use of the imperial honours system mm-hmm. because you could buy people off by saying, look, we, we, won't, we won't follow the, the, the political line, we won't give you an economic advantage, but how would you feel about a knighthood? <laughs> oh, well, oh, oh, you know, being that. There's a good example, and I'm not sure whether you're aware of it, but it's another South Australian case for you.
0: All oh, right, yeah. Do you good. know
1: about the story of Ellerton Becker? No. Look it up in the Australian Dictionary of Biography. I think it's probably the funniest entry in the Australian Dictionary of Biography. <laughs> okay. He was a guy from South Australia who was a policy who was a property developer, but also ran school bands.
0: All oh, right. Yeah.
1: And Something very odd happened. He had a link, shall we say, to the South Australian Liberal government and somehow he always got to know when an area where property was going to be rezoned.
0: Funny that. Yeah.
1: And uh, he made quite a lot of money and he then went to the, the Academy of Science and said, look, if I offer to pay for your building you know, the Ellerton-Becker building in Canberra, do you think you could get me a knighthood? So John Eccles went to see Menzies and said to Menzies, "Uh, look, this guy's got this money and if he gives us X million dollars, how about uh, would you give him a knighthood? So Menzies drew on a long cigar and said, oh, well, all right. So he he duly got the knighthood. And he then said, which caused great consternation in the science community, he got his knighthood. And he then said, could he pay the money in (laughs) instalments?
0: Should have got the money before he got the knighthood. That's the lesson.
1: (laughs) Anyway, have a look at the entry in the ADB. It's a a stunning entry. Very, very funny
0: entry. So. Not a fan of vested interests and not not beholden to vested interests. Um, Menzies was also and there there's a uh, fundamental decency to, about him, yes. I mean. He wouldn't have he wouldn't have,
1: stu- he wouldn't have allowed corruption no. or deception. No. And he was a terrific parliamentarian. No. He used the parliament appropriately, I mean very cleverly. He was a a, a terrific debater, brilliant debater and he 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 was absolute ass because he he was ahead of everyone else
0: mm. he, his um, takedown of evett in over the issue of communism in the on the floor of parliament yeah. that pretty much finished evett off is a famous oh speech abso- absolutely and he was a great orator and you know there's something to be said for for great oratory we don't Necessarily well, value it, I think, as much these but days as we, also, as we once did. Yeah, but it's also
1: true, I think, with Everett. I mean, I knew Everett as well, and Everett was a complex, in many ways, unhappy character, but a, a very complex character. He, um, in a way, although. Look, Menzies won seven consecutive um, elections, but you can find that the contemporary judgment sometimes doesn't look so good in the historical context. And the sort of issues that that Everett was banging on about kept being defeated by the electors, except with the referendum in fifty one. Yes, on communism, Yeah, yeah. Kept being defeated. But if you look back, the sort of issues that he was talking about still look... It's still got some life in them. If you haven't read it, I do encourage you to read um, Gideon Haig's book, The Brilliant Boy. Yes, it's an extraordinary book. It's yes. wonderfully written.
0: He is our next podcast guest, actually, Barry. Oh, excellent! Well,
1: he, he's he's a great hero of mine. Yeah, it's a it's a really wonderful book because you can see that uh, that here you had an example of of Everett who was operating absolutely against the mainstream. Yes. But if you read the dissenting judgment that he had in the in the the case that the book centers on, you can see that there was a a different kind of vision of what and, and his his conflict with Menzies over Egon Kish. And also the other thing I was going to say about the nineteen thirties, there was a terrific play by Clifford Odetz, the the American writer, called I think it's called Till the Day I Die, mm. which was uh, a thing about refugees from Germany, and the the German government put pressure on the Lyons government to say they didn't want the they didn't want the play to be performed, and so you had an extraordinary story, uh, and in which you had. Theaters locked down and police there to say you can't perform this play
0: here in Australia.
1: Hmm. You can't perform this play. Why? Well, we might offend the Germans, right? Yes. And so the result is that and the, the extraordinary stories that sometimes you'd find local government organizations would organize a play in their local town hall, and then they'd come along and guess what? The place was bolted up, and coppers were there. You couldn't do it. So that was, I mean, this is the sort of thing I was thinking about. That was sort of saltifying yes. to say, "Look, we know best," mm. and and you know, really, you don't even think about this. Just think about something else. Go and kick a football.
0: Yeah. Well, again, that sort of censorship of yeah. of views. It's, I mean, it's interesting thinking about it today in the context of, of COVID and people's view, different views on COVID and vaccines. Oh, absolutely. People in a free society should be entitled to, to say what they want. But we are getting to a stage, I think, in Australia where you, you know, there's, there's a, you can't, you can't say you're, you can't say you have a negative view of, of a vaccine because otherwise other people might also think that. And then there'll be sort of contagion of anti-vaxxers.
1: Well, I mean... I mean, this is whole, a difficult
0: the, public policy question too, isn't it, Barry? Oh,
1: but the whole yeah. question of the definition of... The, the whole question of freedom, you see, does freedom involve the right to defame mm. and also the right not to be defamed, the right to be vaccinated and the right not to be vaccinated, or or the right to be protected and the right not to be protected. But um, it, it's it is immensely complex. I was observing the last demonstration in Melbourne and which was very interesting because I could see that while you had people who were seemed to be part of the ranting right you also had a lot of people who were clearly, I'd say, of a left persuasion.
0: Yes. And yes. I was
1: interested, uh, in fact I took a few photographs of it you had people who were quoting Primo Levy <laughs> about techno-fascism. Right. And this is part of the problem yeah. that um, uh, and it's one of the reasons, uh, I mean, I'm very much concerned about this, for example, that the wellness industry. Yeah. You see, the wellness industry is very hostile to vaccination. Yeah. Now, you'd have to say uh, vaccination's been around now for a quarter of a millennium. It's yeah. been going for 250 years. You'd have to say it's it's looking... Pretty good,
0: yeah. You're yeah. away. You, I'd say so. so. so, so yeah. That's
1: a pretty fair result <laughs> after 250 years, and yet pretty they're good. Really for smallpox
0: as, eradication, I'd say.
1: <laughs> and yet they're talking as if it's something you know absolutely so new, yeah. and frightening, and
0: yeah, yeah. Well,
1: all all kids you've been vaccinated from the age of
0: absolutely one. Yeah. Oh, uh, well, my children basically yes. at birth you've you're vaccinated yes. you're just sort of bubbling over with yes. vaccines yes. uh but no I mean, fascinating fascinating debates over free speech over um, you know what what makes a free society these days in in australia but across the world
1: menzies was a terrific mimic he had a very good theatrical sense yes he was he could be hysterically funny <laughs> really but uh, but in the end there was a mixture that that he's recognized Conscious of his, of his great career, his stellar achievements, but in the end he felt somehow things had changed, the world had changed. And I think what had happened was the 20th century had caught up with him.
0: Mm. Mm. Yeah, well, time catches up with all of us, doesn't it? Especially he lived a he lived a long life through many enormous you know, events in history. First World War, Second World War, Cold War... Vietnam War, I mean, just the wars alone were, were big seismic events in Australian history.
1: Foreign affairs was his great weakness.
0: Mm. But he was the Prime Minister who signed, uh, or at least his government signed, the ANZUS Security Pact with the United States, which really did represent that, that shift from, from you know, home, the mother country, to, to a different way of conceptualising Australia's but, security. And that, that was important.
1: Well, come on. Look, <laughs> It's ha- not important? Ha- are, you,
0: are you going to say ANZUS isn't important?
1: No. <laughs> home, home was out to lunch. Home wasn't interested.
0: No, they weren't.
1: They, they, no. they were definitely out to lunch. Yeah. And you'd have to well, say... Well, fall of
0: Singapore was, was the end of But the of
1: thing is, I think the problem is that if you say... We've, we've got ourselves in a dilemma of saying if the Americans are in it, we've got to be in it too... Now you'd have to say, in the end, in the end, Afghanistan was less than a than a, a dazzling success. And you've got to say, what was it about?
0: Mm,
1: mm, what mm. was it about? And and you could to see be back
0: it, to square one again is a it's a pretty we, sad it, indictment. It, it also
1: mm. meant that we denied ourselves the capacity to have a strategic role in saying, look, we have a different perspective. Let's negotiate. We won't automatically. Mm. We won't automatically be part of it. You see, and I often think it was an unlucky chance that John Howard happened to be in the U.S. on on nine eleven, mm. and so the result is he felt absolutely recruited, and nothing could induce him to say, "Look, let's have a careful think about this. Are you sure about? Are you sure about the material that you're relying on? Have you really thought it through? We didn't."
0: No, and I think, um, you know, the last 20-odd years, regime changes, uh, which, was, which was an approach that was taken to foreign and defence yeah. policy back in the... the well, it has been for many, many decades, but, you know, particularly over Iraq and Afghanistan, that there would be very, very little domestic appetite in Australia and the United States for that. And that's bipartisan now okay. in the United States. But,
1: but let let me ask let me conclude by asking you a question with the exception and it's contested with the exception of the establishment of Israel in 1948 since the Crusades how many Western interventions in the Middle East have been successful
0: I guess it's your definition of success
1: <laughs> can you think of any um... I bet you can't
0: well, I think, I mean, through uh, World War Two, we were able to, you know, there were some successes, militarily speaking, no, 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 but, but in terms of...
1: No, though we had forces there, that, but we were not intervening.
0: Mm, mm. Or oh, we were defending, right, yeah. Mm. Uh, yeah, well, lessons be, to be... You'll lesson, be struggling to think of it. Yeah, lesson, lessons to be learned, that's for sure, but... You know, I think uh, a commitment to universal values that each human being throughout the world should have, you know, there is inherent human dignity and values that, that like should refugees. be... Like refugees. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah, yeah. Even All in
1: Australia? The,
0: even, even, <laughs> anywhere. They're universal, Barry. They shouldn't be limited to one country or another. But it, it's incredibly important that we think about how Australia can make a contr- contribution to upholding universal values throughout Absolutely.
1: the world i' great that. and this
0: and this is where a situation like Afghanistan is so difficult because we we have been there we have been helping keep some sort of peace and and obviously you know the the contribution australia and and others made to uh, um, improving the situation for women and girls in Afghanistan was enormous and now we've seen that a massive, massive retrograde step with the okay. re you know okay. recommencement of the Taliban regime and it's it's a tragedy and it, it, it breaks it breaks my heart as someone who's watched that country's progress over the last thirty years.
1: And which country in the Middle East which country in the Middle East had had the best record with regard to the education of women and girls?
0: Oh, yeah. Iran! Iran was uh, was good before the Iran. before the revolution, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah,
1: but even under the dreaded Saddam Hussein, mm. the opportunities for girls and women were better because it was more secular. Mm. And now, give yeah. me a break!
0: Yeah, no, it's uh, it's. It's, it's very sad. Well, thank you very much, Barry Jones, for joining me on Afternoon Light. It's been a, been a pleasure and I've taken up a lot of your time, so I appreciate it a lot. Okay. The Afternoon Light podcast is brought to you by the Robert Menzies Institute at the University of Melbourne. You can find more about the Institute and our podcast at robertmenziesinstitute.org.au. We're also on Twitter, on Facebook and LinkedIn. We look forward to you joining our show next week. Thank you.